Thank you very much for coming to Sosi uh, Hyok Southeast Asia Center's first public lecture in this academic year. It's a great pleasure to have our uh, uh, esteemed speaker, Professor Jonathan Rick, uh, who is here to share his thoughts on, well, on the very issue that you will be seeing on, uh, you are seeing on the screen. Uh, as the chair, uh, uh, I need to remind you a few things. Uh, but before that, you may be wondering who I am. So I'm the center director. Hyunbang Shin, uh, and great pleasure to be uh, chairing uh, the talk today. Uh, a few things as, a, as the requirement of the school. As chair of this public meeting, I remind you that it is the policy of the school to ensure freedom of speech within the law for speakers. So please stop disturbing this meeting is when I'm going to say, you know, when any disturbance is going to be made, but I'm, I mean, this is a very much you know, going to be a very enjoyable, pleasant occasion to discuss. And I hope you know, we'll be uh, having some questions that will make the speaker a little, slightly a little uncomfortable so that you can have interesting discussions uh, during the Q&As. Uh, if you're a Twitter savvy person, you have the Twitter uh, uh, hashtag, LSE, SEA, uh, Southeast Asia Development. So LSE, SEA Development is the hashtag. Um, so that's the thing uh, for you to use. Do please you know, spread the news of the talk, uh, share what, uh, your, the learning outcomes by tweeting about, and we'll be more than happy to see those tweets appearing. Um, a brief introduction of the speaker. So Professor Jonathan Rigg is Chair of Professor in Human Geography, currently in the University of Bristol in the Department of Geography. He previously, before moving, to, moving back to the UK, he was the, the director uh, of the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore, where I had a, and a pleasure to meet in person in the director's office. Um, as geographer, uh, Jonathan has been really you know, engaging with the studies um, of rural as well as urban societies from the perspectives of human geography and development studies and one of the few people I would say who is working on this boundary, the nexus between the rural and the urban development and the urban transformation um, from, this, uh, in, from the interdisciplinary perspective and really uh, engaging with these topics with very prolific output, uh, I would say. Uh, his books uh, would, uh, would include uh, the most recent one, that is, that is entitled Modern Rural with the subtitle of Textures of Thailand's Agrarian Transformation, which came out from University of Hawaii Press last year. And also Challenging Development in Southeast Asia with the subtitle of The Shadows of Success, which came out from London, uh, Routledge in London uh, in 2016. But before that, he is also very much well known by many of, many of books that came out um, in the 2000s, such as on Everyday Geography of the Global South in 2007, as well as Living with Transition in Laos uh, in 2005, and also Southeast Asia, the Human Landscape of Modernization and Development in 2003, and Asian Cities, Migrant Labor and Contested Spaces, which came out in 2011. So these are, I hope and I expect, all going to be materials that will be condensed in a sense uh, to produce you know, what is going to be a very exciting talk uh, today that will allow us to think about what it means to um, observe this development when Asian region, which is often known to be experiencing very condensed pace of development, sometimes uh, praised as to produce um, 
development that uh, ensures some sort of pr uh, prosperity for some sex, uh, factions, some you know, groups of population. But I think there's a bit of myths about uh, what Asian development is about, especially when many economists around the world, especially those in global south, when they are trying to think of uh, East and Southeast Asian development as a reference point to think about their own development, and there seems to be a bit of myth about uh, equality, uh, justice, and this is probably one of the things that we are going to engage with and hear about. So I'll stop there without further ado. Um, oh, uh, fire assembly point, which is quite important. Although we wouldn't expect some, uh, such things, uh, who knows? Uh, in case of in a fire, uh, any in a remote, uh, bell ringing, uh, please do follow the, the stewards. The assembly point will be as you go uh, leave the building, turn left, a, li a little bit of walk, and turn left again, uh, and, and there will be uh, the, the assembly point after going through the alleyway. Fawcett um, House is the building, uh, one of the three buildings of this uh, LSE. Uh, the assembly point is there, so please do meet us there when, in case of fire. I think that's it. So without further ado, uh, uh, let us welcome Professor Jonathan Rick. Right. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Hewan. A wonderful um, introduction um, covering my books. I don't know if I'll be able to cover as much ground as you've just um, kind of highlighted, but I'll, I'll do my best. And also thank you, Lee, for wonderful organization. And thank you for coming. I mean, you're sure you've got better things to do on a, what's today? Thursday, Thursday evening. Um, but thank you. Right. Um, this is, well, it's a story about poverty. Um, it's a story about mostly Thailand, although I've also worked in Laos and Indonesia and Vietnam and Nepal and Sri Lanka. But I'm focusing on Thailand because I think it kind of sums up the argument that I want to try and put forward. And dare I say, it's also a story about me. It's about how my engagement with the field, and in particular with rural people, has raised a kind of series of puzzles that I've been, I suppose, struggling with over the last, gosh, almost 40 years. So this is, um, this is me, believe it or not. Um, 40 years ago, or getting on for that, 38 years ago, in a village in Mahasarakam in northeast Thailand. So I left Soas, just up the road from here, in 1982, wet behind the ears. I didn't really know what I was doing, a neophyte, if you like, and my supervisor, Harvey Domaine, said, go to northeast Thailand and just do some research. And so I ended up in Mahasarakam, and... I suppose, interested in questions of rural development. So what happens to households and production and villages during periods of transition and transformation? There was also a sort of political edge to this. I mean, at the time, I think many radical scholars thought that Thailand could fall to communism. It would be notionally the next domino to, to tip over. I mean, it wasn't long before that Vietnam and Laos, if you like, had fallen to communism. And I think scholars like Andrew Turton, Caldwell, Fast, they wrote a book, I think it was in 78, called Thailand, Roots of Crisis. And they thought Thailand was on the verge of being the next country to turn red, if you like. The Communist Party of Thailand was pretty influential. And in fact, in the area that I was working in, Mahasarakam, 
fairly large swathes of the countryside in the northeast were under the control of the CPT, the Communist Party of Thailand. So I went there wanting to understand rural development and the challenges of poverty. And I think there was a widespread feeling then that sort of one of the reasons why people were joining the CPT was because they were poor. And a deputy prime minister of Thailand at the time said something along the lines of, if stomachs are full, people do not turn to communism. So there was a kind of question of, how do you lift this region and these people out of poverty and in that way address a really prevalent political crisis at the time, or at least that's the way it was seen. Um, and to that end, the CIA commissioned a study of northeast Thailand. They thought, right, well, what we need to do is find out about poverty, and then maybe we can address the problem, in inverted commas, of the CPT. And so they commissioned this study, which uh, was confidential for a long period, but was released a few years ago. And you can see up here, they found that 78% of rural northeasterners had a cash income of just $15 per year. So way below the extreme poverty line. But then this next line, but most villagers rated themselves reasonably well off. And if you read the document, you can see these uh, surveyors, the CIA, kind of being really puzzled by that because it, it didn't quite capture what they thought was going on. So here I am in the same village. You can see in the intervening years I lost all my hair. I don't think that's a feature of academia, but anyway, in my case it was. Um, so here I am in the same village in 2008. Um, and I've done restudies in 1994, in 2008-9, and in fact right now we're trying to get funds to do another restudy uh, for 2020-2021. So I've been kind of tracking this village over that period. Um, we conducted a study, in, not in this village in particular, but one quite close to it in a neighbouring province, Konken, uh, where people were palpably much better off than those people I sought to understand back in 1982. And as you can see here, around about half self-identified kind of themselves or defined themselves as either poor or very poor. So there's something kind of interesting going on here that... Um, there's one puzzle about why the past isn't seen as poor, at least the people living in that past, and why the present is seen as poor. And the sort of intervening period of course, Thailand became, well, for a period, the fastest growing large economy in the world. I mean, in World Bank terms, of course, it became an Asian miracle. Um, and it's now an upper middle income country. And yet, oddly, perhaps surprisingly, is a kind of question of, in terms of poverty, people, if anything, see them more likely to see themselves as poor in 2020 than in 1966, or in my case, 1982. And I guess that's kind of what I want to talk about today. What's happened over that period? So why is it that people are seeing themselves, in one way or another, seeing themselves as, if anything, more vulnerable, more precarious, maybe more likely to living in poverty today than they were. So, I suppose in summary, you could say, well, back in, you know, 1980s or the 1970s, people were living meagre lives. But they didn't, but they weren't poor. Whereas today, 
they have considerable material wealth, but they are poor. And I suppose that's kind of what I want to try and illuminate, what's happened over that period. Before I do that, I think it's kind of worthwhile sort of taking a step back from the particularities of Thailand and think a little bit about how scholars from different disciplines have kind of thought about poverty. Yeah, so have, have they addressed it in the, or thought about it in the grandest sense? And I've got, I don't know if this works, but I've decided uh, for the sake of this discussion that there are kind of three schools of thought. I mean, there may be others, maybe you've got others, but anyway, have a go with this. First of all, we have what you might call the poverty eradicators. And I guess the classic example of this will be a name many of you will be familiar with, Jeffrey Sachs. And he famously said, you know, in 2005, our generation can choose to end extreme poverty by 2025. Of course, he was one of the key architects of the UN's Millennium Development Goals. And if you read his books, you get the sense that if we throw technology and money at the problem, we can deal with poverty. Yeah? That it's within our grasp to do that. I mean, it's interesting you should say our generation and who our is specifically is it's an interesting area to explore. But nonetheless, there's a real sense of optimism in the book that if... If only we had the political will, we could do something about it. And I suppose, in a sense, if you look at the data, um, it does appear as though maybe he's right. I mean, this is longitudinal data over the last 200 years. Um, I think based on Addison, Mad- Angus Madison's work, and you can see in 1820, 94% of the world living in extreme poverty. Today, around about 10% living in extreme poverty. So you might say, well... You know, maybe Jeffrey Sachs has a point. Um, I mean, you're probably aware that sort of Jason Hickel, who's here at the LSE in anthropology, has contested these figures. But nonetheless, there is that school of thought. Secondly, we have the poverty persisters, who I suppose the best example of this would be Adam Smith, that fantastic quote of his where he talks about by necessaries. I understand not only the commodities which are indispensably necessary for the support of life, but whatever the customs of the country renders it indecent for creditable people, even of the lowest order, to be without. I mean, it's a sort of lovely summary. So in other words, of course, poverty is socially determined. It's a relation between people, between classes. It shifts, it morphs. And it, in the kind of biblical sense, the poor will always be with us. We'll never be able to get them away. And that's a sort of another way to think about poverty. And the third way, and I suppose this, I think, might be the way, maybe the category that Jason Hickel would be put in, are the sort of poverty transformers. They pay attention to the way that poverty is produced and reproduced in new ways under the forces of capitalism. And I've got a quote here from Barbara Harris-White. Poverty cannot be eradicated. On the contrary, poverty is continually being created and recreated, in her case, under the institutions of capitalism. So for that, we need to ask questions about how does incorporation into the mainstream create poverty? How, in that sort of peculiar way, does aggregate economic growth actually make some people poor? What are the circumstances in which that happens? And... I suppose I want to sort of say that these are not competing, well, they are competing views, but what I want to kind of argue 
is that they kind of coexist. And if we trace through the history of rural Thailand over the last 40 years, we can see them those sort of views coming to ground in quite particular ways. So I'm not sure we need to make a choice. We need to ask questions about how and where do we see them emerging. And that's kind of what I want to do. So this is a photo I took in. We're working at the moment in northern Laos um, in quite poor rural communities um, in the uplands. And I suppose you look at people like this, and I'm sort of saying we've got three explanatory possibilities. One is we could say that they're experiencing inherited poverty, that it's because they're being cut off from the mainstream that they remain poor, and that the challenge of development, I suppose in the Jeffrey Sachs sense, would be to connect them, to integrate them, to draw them in, and then maybe we'd be able to lift them out of poverty. The second possibility is that actually their poverty is something that relates to how their social relations with other people in Laos, that ideas of poverty are changing over time. I mean, it's interesting, when I first worked in Laos in 1990, um, there wasn't really a word for poverty in Laos. I mean, it wasn't, people didn't kind of know what you were talking about, whereas now it's very much part of the lexicon of ordinary people. And thirdly, I suppose, or are they poor because of the way they've been integrated into the mainstream? So is it the kind of Barbara Harris White view? So how would we interpret their condition? And what's important about this, of course, is that the view that we take, in a sense, determines the policies that we put in place. So this is not just an academic exercise. How we view these people's condition, then the next step is to say, okay, what do we do about it? So the processes and circumstances, the mechanisms of poverty creation and identifying what they are are really important in terms of the policies which then might come out of that process of thinking. Last thing before I get into the detail, and here I'm kind of paraphrasing Amartya Sen. Of course, we talk about the poor as if there are some sort of army of poor people out there and they're all the same and we can tackle them in all the same ways, and we can't. I mean, it's a kind of statement of the blindingly obvious that people are poor for different reasons, they experience poverty differently, and the mechanisms that we might, or if you like, the policies that we put in place will have different effects on different groups. So we've always got to be really cautious about talking about the poor as if there are, you know, there's an army of poor people out there who we can tackle simultaneously. And this sort of montage of photos that I've taken over the years this one in Pasaikan in Jakarta, that one in Vietnam, in Da Nang in 1990, this was during my field research, that one you've already seen in Laos. In a sense, you could say all these people are poor, but they're differently poor. And I suppose understanding that is important. So it's kind of important, I suppose, cautionary caveat to make um, at the outset. Okay. Right. Um, the way I want to do this, you can probably guess, this is the first time I've given this thing, so I'm just trying to remember how I'm piecing it together. Um, I want to kind of address those big questions by talking about run, one region, so northeast Thailand, which is roughly here. So the place I'm talking about is here in Mahasarakam. Um, one region, it's marginal rain-fed rice cultivation region. Uh, mostly Lao-speaking, 
um, around about a third of the land area and a third of the population of Thailand. So this has always been historically the poorest part of the country. So one region, I want to talk about two villages, Ban Lon Ter, where I did my PhD, and Ban Lao, where we're currently working. I'll take two cases out of those two villages. Um, two households, um, one kind of from 1983, one from 2015. I'll also bring other things in. And I'm doing it over a, a sort of 30-year period. So if you like, two salami slices through time. So this is 1982, and this is 2015. Um, now, obviously, a lot's gone on here. Um, this graph, th this is uh, GDP growth, these bars here. This is the period of the Thai economic miracle. This is when Thailand was the fastest growing large economy in the world. That's when it made a transformation from a low income to middle income to upper middle income. That's where, why Thailand, along with the other seven high-performing Asian economies, so in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, um, why they were picked out by the World Bank as kind of exemplars for the rest of the poor world. If you do it like this, you can succeed. And they, Thailand was one of those exemplars. Um, we also here got the Asian financial crisis, the global financial crisis, and this is poverty coming down here, at least income poverty. So although, well, I'm being really cherry-picky, I'm taking two households in two villages in one region through two slices in time. But hopefully by doing that, I can kind of highlight the sort of debates I want to pick out. Right. So, this is one household. Um, so we have um, a farming family. They have two hectares of rice land, rain-fed rice land, quite poor quality. It's flood-prone, flood nalum. They also have about one and a half hectares of upland, which they plant cassava, which is a kind of jute. Uh, cassava is sort of mainly used for animal feed, at least at this time, exported to Europe. And they have five children, two are in school still, and three are helping on the farm. It's a kind of semi-subsistence household. And the only real income they have is this 10,000 baht, which is about $400. So they were earning about $400 a year in a household of six to support themselves. So this is the, one of the households that I interviewed back in 1983. And that household kind of is neatly contained within the parameters of the village. They are in slightly simplistic terms. They didn't really get out very much. Yeah? They, you know, they weren't you know, going to the city and working here and, and there. Yeah? They were rooted in the village. They were growing glutinous rice to meet their subsistence needs. They had some cash cropping on the uplands, which they sold to a middleman to earn $400 and they were sustained very largely on the resources and the natural environment around them in the village. So, I, and I'll come back to this point, I could kind of enter the village physically and I could come to understand this household. And so at the time, I suppose if you're gonna kind of sum up what it was like, you could say that the household was co-residential, 
in the sense they're all living under one roof in that sort of um, survey sense. Um, the village was fairly coherent. It was like a container, like one of those Russian dolls that you could fit things together. Livelihoods, though, were multi-stranded. Yeah, they did lots of things. They collected non-timber for forest products. They grew vegetables. They had chickens. They had rice. They had cassava. Yeah, they were helping each other on during peak periods in the agricultural cycle. So there was a lot going on, but it was kind of locally rooted. And as I said, the household was subsistence-oriented. So people would say having rice in your rice barn was like having money in the bank. Yeah, you had to... The, the one thing you could not compromise on was your growing enough rice to feed yourself for the next year. Because they had no savings, no bank accounts, yeah? That's what they had to do. And so everything was kind of oriented towards securing enough glutinous rice. If you could fill your rice barn, you're okay. And I suppose, as an academic, you know, as a surveyor, you could say these people were objectively poor. They were below the extreme poverty line wherever we draw it. And yet they didn't kind of think of themselves in that way. So it's a little bit like that CIA survey. Right, the second um, household is this one. Uh, and a little bit more complicated, but I'll, I'll kind of run through it again because I think by doing that it kind of makes sense what, what I'm going to be arguing later. They have about four acres, four hectares of land. Um, all planted to rice, um, and that provides their subsistence. The male head of household, or the, the husband, he's a sugarcane cutter, some of the year in Kanchanaburi, which is in western Thailand. And the, um, his, his wife, she's mainly a farmer, but she also does piecework. So she's making, finishing nets for a Taiwanese-invested factory, uh, which I'll kind of come back to later. And then they've got a son who's a delivery driver in Nongbo Lampu. They've got a daughter who's a factory worker in Konken, uh, which is about 20 k's away. And they have another uh, daughter who's a, an NGO worker in Udon, which is about, I don't know, about 200 k's away. Um, and I suppose if we were going to kind of draw how the village might map onto this household, it's essentially the mother and father, husband and wife here, they're in the village, although he goes to Kanchanaburi during the dry season, and one grandchild who's being looked after by the grandparents. Yeah. So you can see kind of what's happened is that the, the village as a sort of physical container of activities, I mean, there was... Um, if you like, the intimate universe of the village no longer exists. It's been pierced. It's become porous. People are outside. And I suppose you can say that compared with Ban Nong Ter back in 1983, the household has become multi-sited. Yeah, so it's no longer co-residential, which raises interesting questions about how we define the household. The village has kind of been hollowed out. I mean, there's a middle generation that's missing. It's the old and the young. I mean, and this, of course, has been beautifully studied in China the way in which the working uh, sort of age from maybe 20 to 40 have just sort of disappeared. They're no longer there. So you have this sort of split generation households. Livelihoods are still multi-stranded, but they've also become multi-sited. So they're now out of sight. 
and the household is less and less, if you like, subsistence-oriented and more and more market-oriented. So that need for cash has become a driving issue. And if poverty does exist, it's a kind of... It's a production of the present. For that, we have to maybe ask questions of the Barbara Harris-White type. How has capitalism embedded itself in this context? And I'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay, so, um, thinking about poverty, how would you, you know, classically, how would that, thinking of that 1983 um, household, how would that household, clearly living in extreme poverty, how might it be lifted out of poverty? Um, I mean, here it is again. Here am I again. Um, the reason why I put this here is there was a real sense that I could enter that village and come to understand it as a social and spatial entity, as a unit of production and consumption. And of course, I don't know, maybe some people in this room, there are thousands of village studies across you know, the so-called global south. I mean, there are hundreds in Southeast Asia. What people like me, PhD students, used to do, we'd find a village and we'd live there and we'd study it and we, and we thought we could come to understand it in that way. And certainly I was under that illusion. I mean, I, here I am standing outside the entrance to the, mo the monastery thinking, yes, I've found my village in inverted commas and now I'm going to go into it and all will be revealed. And I suppose this mapping, that kind of hints that maybe, maybe I can, maybe I, I could do that. And I suppose at the time, there was a sense that the reason why villages like Bandondere were poor and the households in it was because they were disconnected. That we draw them into the mainstream, we connect them. And although it sounds really dull, roads, I mean, this is not Thailand, this is Laos. I took this, I think, last year. We're working in a Hmong village up in upland Laos. This road, I mean, extraordinary the way, the power of roads to transform villages and what people do and how they think about themselves and so forth. And an awful lot of in development funds in northeast Thailand went into building roads. I mean, I have to admit, that wasn't purely for development reasons. It's also so that the American and Thai army could move around the northeast quickly. So there were kind of strategic security issues. But there were also development issues. The idea that if people aren't connected, then all the things that, if you like, the Poverty eradicators like Jeffrey Sachs would like to do, you can't do them. So, and I, and I suppose before we kind of think, oh, how simplistic, um, when you talk to people about the past, and I know that's methodologically problematic, you begin to realize how difficult it was. This was an interview that we did in 2016 in Ban Lao, and um, someone you could see, when I was a child, we used buffaloes to plough our rice fields. In the morning, I walked from home and brought our buffaloes to my father at the field hut. It was so far. After school, I had to walk there to tend the buffaloes. Such a tough time. Farming rice was so hard. Three of my siblings died very young and another died as an adult, and so on, yeah? So I think we sometimes lose sight of how difficult it was to survive, get by at the time. Right, so what happened in Banondere and many villages like it is a kind of 
series of changes that sort of reformulated the village and its place in the space economy. And I'll kind of just run through what happened. First of all, there was, I mean, this is kind of what Jim Scott's talked a lot about. The village was made visible to the state. I mean, that in Thailand kind of dates from around about 1905. I mean, up until then, there, there wasn't anything, I mean, sort of villages didn't exist. Mulban. I mean, in 1905, the administrative reforms were created, and they said, right, form villages, elect headmen, give yourselves surnames so we know who you are, yep, so we could count and measure and map you. So there are a set of administrative reforms which, in a sense, made villages like Ban Nong Dae, um, I mean, this is for Ban Lao, made them visible to the state, made them things that you could act upon. Then, of course, you have to make them modern. You put in place water supply, roads, fresh water, electricity, that sort of thing. Yep. So those amenities and services we associate with modernity, they're kind of put in place by the state. A series of educational reforms. The opening of the first primary school in this village in 1939. The move from... I mean, when I started doing my PhD, most people had four years of primary school education. It then went to six, then it went to nine. And increasingly in Ban Lao, people have, well, they're like you, um, you know, and all of us in this, well, most of us in the room, they've got degrees, yeah? So that has been endlessly, if you like, childhood has been stretched. And what, what's interesting, I was looking at my field notes in preparing for this talk, and I came across one household where we were talking about education. And the head of the household said, it's not really necessary. I mean, well, why do you need to be educated to be a farmer? All you have to do is be able to read and write and count so that you can read the back of a, the, the back of a pesticide packet and you don't get cheated by the middleman. And that's all you need. And now I think I've never come across, you know, the more education, the better. Uh, we did a study in northern Thailand after the Asian financial crisis, and we were particularly interested in were people taken out of school during the Asian financial crisis? And we didn't find one household. They did everything. They sold, you know, they mortgaged their land, they sold their equipment, they borrowed money, but they did not take their children out of school. They kept them there. So it almost seemed to be the last thing that went and also integration. You know, the way that communication, particularly, as I said, roads. The building of roads, the connecting of people makes an enormous difference. And finally, if you like, marketization. And all of that was sort of structured and informed by Thailand's and Southeast Asia's five-year national economic and social development plan. The first development plan was released in 1961, still going on. There's only one country in Southeast Asia without national development plans, and that's Singapore. Yeah, all these countries have development plans. And I was going to bring one along today, but I've, I've left it. You open them up, and they detail all of this. You can download them all if you, you want to, both in Thai and in English, from the NESDB website. And they are really nice sort of compendiums of 
how people thought about problems from 1961 through to today. Yeah, well, what are the challenges that exist and what are we going to do about it? And it's, as kind of Tanya Lee would say, it's the rendering technical of the problems that I was seeking to understand in the Northeast in the early 80s. And what they also did, as far as the village is concerned, is kind of two things. I mean, think, going back to this um, household. Of course, they, they kind of punctured... Uh, this is sort of obviously a notional bubble here, but they punctured it. They brought things to the village. They brought schools, education, health centres, cheap credit, um, fertilisers, pesticides agricultural extension agents. They intruded into the village and they brought, in kind of crass terms, development. But what they also did was the... I was going to say they allowed, they permitted, they encouraged the movement of people out of the village. Yeah, so we begin to see the household as a co-residential dwelling unit beginning to break down. So what those changes did education, roads, marketization, is they began to sort of pull apart the household as I kind of originally experienced it back in the 80s. And that had enormous effects on what people did, how they worked, how they saw the world, the roles and responsibilities of men and women and old and young. So all the kind of gendered and generational changes that... I'm kind of interested in exploring, changed. So, to give you uh, an idea of that, this is a data from my PhD in 1982. And the, what I've done is I've divided it into farm and non-farm. So the non-farm is mostly work outside the village. And male and female, as you can see, so men on the left, female on the right and broad generational categories, so age categories, cohorts. And you can see that, if you look at that, so in 1982, around about 80% of people were still farming. Maybe there was 15 or 20% who did other things. Maybe they went to the local town to work and then came back. Some of them maybe were going further to Bangkok to work. Yeah, but they were a a minority. This was still largely a village-based agricultural community. Those who did go out, as you can see on the left, mostly male, so that was gender, mostly gender-selective mobility, mostly male and mostly young. So that was the kind of pattern of work at that time. We've been undertaking a panel study since then, so we're following the same households over time. I mean, obviously, people die and new people get born and that sort of thing, but we're trying to track the households and the descendant households over time. So this is the situation in 2008. You can kind of see what's happened. Um, Non-farm work dominates over farm work. These, the sort of orange bars appear to be moving up the age cohorts, and at least as many women appear to be engaging in non-farm work as men. So in a way, that sort of table I had earlier, which slightly dull, maybe, but this is the sort of effect of those changes. Or maybe it's not, it's the way people have responded to those opportunities. Yeah, as they're 
desperately trying to build a better life for themselves and more particularly for their children. And I suppose this is rather dull as well. But behind this, of course, is an extraordinary kind of opening of the moral envelope of accepted practice. What, what can people do? What are they allowed to do? I mean, back in... I didn't really ask questions about this, but in 1982, I think if you were a young woman and you left the village, people would talk. It's kind of seen as slightly morally dubious thing to do. Well, what are they doing? Who knows? Yeah? I don't think anyone would ask those sorts of questions now. Yeah? So the ability of particularly young women to move without people suspecting the worst is no longer there. So this is not just a spatial change. It's not just an economic change. It's not just a livelihood change. It's a profound social transformation in what people can do, yeah? what they're kind of allowed to do in quotation marks. Right, so that kind of maybe what was happening in the first case. Now I want to talk about the second one, which kind of, so what I'm now trying to draw in is the kind of Barbara Harris White type of argument. Um, this is, um, well, this is Thailand's GDP growth. These are periods of contraction. And the reason why I've done it, the periods when poverty declines are obviously when GDP declines, because poverty is measured in income terms, and generally when GDP declines, income goes down, and so poverty goes up. So yeah, those periods when poverty sort of upticks slightly is when the economy fails. So you would have thought that with such success, generally, in Thailand, economic success, I mean, notwithstanding periods of contraction. Why is it that poverty is so sticky? Why isn't it going away? And that's kind of the question I want to ask now. So we return to this household and its kind of spatial footprint in, in the village. And I'll talk about the peace worker. She's finishing nets, as I said earlier, for a Taiwanese-invested factory. So every kind of week or so, a truck arrives in the village and they dump all these nets and leads need to get attached to the, to the nets. And she's paid 10 baht per net. And this is what she said. She said, in the morning I start at 8 o'clock until 6 o'clock in the evening. Then I cook the meal for my family and watch TV before continuing to make fish nets until 10 o'clock at night and then I go to bed. I can make 10 pieces a day. That's 100 baht a day. That's one-third of the minimum wage. Yeah, so it's not even close to the Thai minimum wage. Um, and then, although these are not uh, the factory worker here, as sort of other research we did, it also, something similar is happening outside the village. People being incorporated within factory work and other sorts of non-farm work at often very low rates of pay or insecure circumstances. And you could argue that this involves the casualization of the formal economy, so the whole kind of zero-hour contracts and that sort of thing. And up here, we've kind of got an informalization of the formal economy. So there are two really important processes going on, which you can see they get grounded in particular ways. 
in this particular household, in this place, at this time. And it, it sort of links back to the work of Harold Wolpe, the famous Marxist sociologist from southern Africa, who was writing about um, people working, men working in the gold mines. So leaving the homelands, going to the gold mines. And there's this really interesting point he, he says in his book from 72. That is to say, so this is about the wages that they're paid. That is to say, capital is able to pay the worker below the cost of his reproduction. In the first place, since in determining the level of wages necessary for the subsistence of the migrant worker and his family, account is taken of the fact that the family is supported to some extent from the product of agricultural production in the reserves. It becomes possible to fix wages at the level of subsistence of the individual worker. That's kind of what's happening here. The reason why she can be paid one-third of the minimum wage is she's still growing rice to feed herself. She's still embedded in the rural context. Yeah, so we've kind of got what Harold Wolpe calls super-exploitation. And you can only understand it because of this interesting kind of intersection between the rural and urban, the farm and the non-farm. And that kind of means that we can come to understand how on earth she would be willing to take, you know, to work such long hours for such little return. Right, so um, to try and sort of bring it together, this was um, one of my interviewees from 1983. Here he is again in 2008, holding the picture of himself that I took in 1983. And of course, it's kind of interesting to think about what's changed for, for him. Um, back in 83, you could say he was a kind of peasant in the sort of classical sense. He was socially rural. His behavior, the way he thought, I suppose you could see, you know, in Thai sort of Kwanbanok, he, he was a kind of country bumpkin, I suppose. And he was income poor. By 2008, I mean, it's an interesting question about whether he's still a peasant or is he a post-peasant or, or what. But anyway, something's happened. Um, he's also kind of become socially urban. Because in fact, in the intervening period, he went to the Middle East and worked on a construction site and then came back again. He's, uh, well, Charles Kyes, Biff Kyes, says he thinks there are more people in Northeast Thailand that have passports than have them in Bangkok because they all go abroad to work. So in an odd sort of way, these country bumpkin peasants are more aware of the wider world than the sophisticates or many of the sophisticates in Bangkok. It's sort of an interesting sort of question about how we think of them, but maybe they're socially urban. So they're in a rural place, but they're kind of urbane in that sort of socio-cultural sense. And they're now income non-poor. And I suppose you could say that when I interviewed him in 1983, he lived a vulnerable life. He was kind of existentially challenged. The point I made earlier, that he had to grow enough rice to feed his family. It was never completely certain whether he'd be able to do that. And if he wasn't able to do that, boy, was he in trouble. Yeah, that sort of sense of living, well, I'm going to over-dramatize it, kind of close to the edge. Uh, by 2008, he wasn't vulnerable, but kind of life was precarious in that sort of standing view of precarity. And, of course, this, 
This was because he wasn't incorporated into the mainstream, and this is because he is incorporated into the mainstream. So here we have the kind of, on the left-hand side, maybe the Jeffrey Sachs vision coming to the fore, and here we have the kind of Barbara Harris White. These two things kind of explaining this one person over a 30-year period. And there's a politics to this. I mean, I don't really work on politics, but this is a cartoon from a Thai newspaper during the red shirt, yellow shirt kind of um, demonstrations. And if you remember, the, the red shirts kind of closed down Bangkok at weekends. So people would get on buses, they would go from rural areas, they'd come into Bangkok. And this is how it's presented in a Thai. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing. I mean, because to, to characterize rural people as buffalo, I mean, buffaloes are slow, dim-witted, profoundly stupid, and easily led astray by venal politicians. So, but behind this image is um, a kind of vision of the rural, an urban vision of the rural, which you can imagine why, you know, people like this supported Taksin when this was the sort of view. And of course, what they do is they come into Bangkok and they clog up the streets. They stop things moving. I suppose a bit like Extinction Rebellion here. Um, right, one last puzzle. I've got ten minutes. Is that right? Five minutes. Oh, right. Okay, five minutes. Um, let's kind of not, I'll end with something which I wasn't going to talk about this, but I, I think it's worth. I mean, there's a kind of another puzzle, which is why hasn't he left farming? Why is he still a farmer? In fact, not just him, but millions of smallholders. Yeah. And I suppose another thing is why should he leave farming? I mean, this is a kind of really interesting case, not just for Thailand, for all of Asia. Um, and the reason why he should have left farming, one is because historical experience makes us think that he should. This is the US, 1850-2015. Farms are getting bigger and fewer in number. That's called the farm size transition. That's the kind of, it's a law that is seen to apply to what happens when countries modernize and develop and you get structural change and employment and all that sort of stuff. People leave rural areas, they go to urban areas, they become factory workers or whatever, and then farms amalgamate into larger units of production, you get mechanization, and you get the American rural world. This is what's happening in Thailand. It's working the other way around. Farms are getting more numerous and smaller. They're not getting larger and less numerous. And I could do the same graph for just about any country in South, Southeast and East Asia. So there's a really interesting historical kind of question here about why? Why aren't they selling their land? Um, and the second reason why people think they should exit farming is because if we want to get rid of, if we want to address poverty, we have to address the problem of the smallholder. Most of Asia's poor live in rural areas and most of the poor in rural areas are smallholders. So if we can get them to exit farming, as the World Bank says, maybe we can lift them out of poverty. Yeah, so maybe, so there's a kind of, sort of interesting question about the whole agrarian transition debate. I mean, at the moment, I think the reason why they're not selling their land is because of the precarity point earlier. That those young women working in the factory in Ayutthaya they just get laid off like that. Where do they go? Where, how do they survive? 
They go back to the natal village. They subsist on the land. So people keep hold of the land because the nature of late capitalism means they can't, in a sense, afford to sell it. And that's, that's the reason why maybe the agrarian transition seems to have stalled for most of Asia, not just for Thailand. I'll skip through this, and I'll come to here. So, right, let's round it up. Um, this is um, Banonto in 1982. Here's Banonto in 1994. And there it is in 2008. Yeah, so over my... I was going to say short life. I guess it's getting longer now, isn't it? But over a relatively short period of time, from 1980 to 2008. In visual terms, this is what's happened to this village. I mean, just extraordinary. And I should say, I had no idea. When I was rereading my field diaries from 1982, I didn't have a clue as to just over the so-called event horizon was the Asian miracle. Yeah? I mean, the lack of prescience in my work is just astounding. Um, yeah, so that kind of means we've got to be really about, modest about our ability to just see a couple of years into the future. And yet all of us are kind of asked to, you know, talk about, well, what does the future hold? What's going to happen here? Oh, I don't know. Yep. I didn't have a clue in 1982 that it would be this sort of transformation. I've no doubt in my mind that people... I mean, I won't say they're happier, because, I mean, I don't know. But they're certainly better off, better educated, better fed, healthier than they were in 1982. I have no doubt about that. But oddly, they're probably also more likely to say that they're poor. And hopefully, kind of what I've done or I've tried to do is to sort of try to sort of um, pick out why that exists. And I hope that kind of what I've tried to say, I think kind of works for other places too. Although I've kind of rooted it in one, two, you know, one small part of northeast Thailand. I think, um, I hope that the lessons have wider currency. So, thank you. Well, thank you so much. That was a wonderful talk, and um, it's quite a, a remarkable effort, uh, I have to say, you know, to have this uh, the power of analytical generalization by looking at the two households which are embedded, situated in a uh, 32 years apart from each other, and using these as a way of understanding uh, and having a glimpse of what it means to have development, especially as experienced by these households uh, in their own settings, which kind of also include the stories of uh, multiple generations actually going through the transition as well. So in the remaining time, about a little more than half an hour, uh, we receive questions. Uh, please do let us know, um, especially speaker, who you are. Um, and can I also ask you as chair to ask questions rather than make a long statement. Okay? So there will be a roving mic going around, so please do raise your hand if you would like to ask questions here. So we start, I guess, from my right to the left. So one over here in the first row, the second one here in this third one. And then let's get three questions uh, at the one go and we'll come around for the second round of questions collecting. 
Um, hi, Prof. Hi, uh, my name is Al. I am a master's student here um, doing urbanization development. Um, so I had two questions. So within the village, I'm just curious, um, you talked a lot about intra-household and village and country scale uh, developments. I'm wondering about inter-household kind of relations. And I'm wondering about what Scott would say about the lower economy and how Walker kind of problematized that by saying the middle-income peasants. What about the inter-household uh, social security net, if, if one would call it that, and as well as um, a group of people in the village, like the disabled, that are on welfare, that, that cannot work anymore, or try to find alternate forms of work, what happens to them in this kind of transition. And um, the other thing in your book, you talk about land and the success of land titling. Um, my understanding now is that the government in Thailand can like repossess or use the land whenever they want, and that actually has increased a lot of precarity around the country. I'm wondering if that kind of like um, adds to a compliment or, or challenges some of the ideas you're talking about in terms of like DeSoto's land titling being like helpful in terms of explaining this puzzle that you're talking about, small holding, small holders, sorry, thank you. Uh, next, here, uh, third row. Uh. I'm Jack, um, first year management student. In reference to you saying how uh, the, the, the perceived poverty has increased, um, uh, that they feel, they feel poorer now. Do you think that has anything to do with the, uh, their more awareness of the, the, the richer people in, in the cities, whether that be through internet, television, or, or, or outsiders coming to the village? Okay, uh, last one over here. Uh, yes, both row. Over here. Um, um, yeah, thank you very much for the talk. Um, my name is Mubin. I'm a history student. I was just wondering, you made two points about the casualization of the formal economy and the informalization of the formal economy. So I was just wondering if you could share like, what are some of the possible sources of that. So you know, what are the, some of the reasons? Because it seems like it's a problem of institutional failures. So I was wondering like, how did that stem about? Because when you talked about Thailand and their detailed economic plans, it just seems counterintuitive that they would have these failures as well. Thank you. Okay. Jonathan? Yeah. Um, okay, great question. Thank you. Um, Inter-household relations. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a lot of reciprocal labor exchange. And I suppose that, I mean, I'd read, you know, of course, Jim Scott's, you know, Moral Economy of the Peasant, and I was, wanted to find it. You know, which of course is one of the problems of reading, um, is that you know it shapes. Uh, but certainly there was there was a lot of uh, shared work, reciprocal labour exchange. There was no exchange of money. It was mostly you know work. And I, you know, during peak periods in the agriculture, because different paddies would become to maturity, ready for harvest at different times, and all that sort of stuff. So it did kind of accord with the sorts of things that Jim Scott was writing about. Um, and I sort of think. That's because kind of, of course, growing enough rice was absolutely critical. You know, that classic um, Tawny's book, um, Labour in China, where he says, you know, the, the life of the peasants is like, was it someone standing up to his neck in water and even a ripple is enough to drown him? You know, classic sort of statement. And it's a bit like, if it's like that, boy, you better work together because otherwise, you know, you all kind of fail. And I suppose that sense of we're all in this together was part of the kind of village narrative, I suppose. But now, I don't think that's the case. People see themselves as in very different positions. Some are labor rich, some are labor poor, some have got savings, some haven't, they've got, yeah. So I think that sort of sense that people can cooperate 
unproblematically has gone away. So um, almost all labour is now monetized. People won't do it. Sometimes between relations or close friends there will be, but I would say 90% in, not just in these villages, the other ones I've studied, I would say it, it's wage labouring. Um, and generally there's a shortage of labour, so now of course you've got Lao coming across from Laos into the northeast to work for money. So it's become uh, different. Land titling. Um, and so you, you must be the only person who's read my book. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's there's one. Um, um, so, so Thailand's often thought to have the the, the most successful land titling um, process in the world. I mean, millions of land titles were given out to people. It was funded by Ausaid and the World Bank. I mean, just an extraordinary program. Um, but I mean, land land is very sticky as a you know, selling land. It's interesting. I, I mean, although I kind of presented the puzzle at the end about why people haven't sold their land, I'm kind of wondering is that we have to wait for the ultimate attrition, which people have to die, you know, and then things will change. So I'm kind of, if I, I'd like to wait another 20 years and maybe in our restudy, you know, so families won't get rid of the land. When they die, then maybe things will shift. So, of course, that graph I put up of the US is from 1850 to the 2015, so it's over a century and a half, yeah? Whereas Thailand's, I mean, it's a bit of a cheek, actually, but it's only over since 1960, so it's 50 years. So in a sense, maybe the problem is that no one's died, or not enough people have died. We've just got to wait a little bit longer. But, um, but land titling and the collection of land and capitalist people buying land and accumulating land to build housing estates and all that sort of stuff. So things are changing in, you're right, in Thailand. Um, right, the second question was there, wasn't it? Um, awareness of the urban. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was it Marshall Salins who said that poverty is an invention of civilization? Um, you know, it's when people kind of become civilized that they become poor. I mean, I'm not, that's a sort of rather trite thing to say, but um, certainly people are aware now. I mean, the, the Thai word for development is gan patana. Yeah, and until 1961, people did, it wasn't a word, no one used it. It didn't, as a word, it didn't really, wasn't in common currency, yeah? Now everyone is talking about development, yeah? So in that sense, it's not just awareness of the wider world. I mean, everyone watches television, they know what Bangkok's like, they travel around, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, maybe in 1980, people were kind of unaware. I mean, there were, I think there was one, two televisions in the village, but that wasn't really much, you know. Um, occasionally there'd be traveling films that would come, you know, they'd show films and things like that in the monastery. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, which is kind of what, Adam Smith was saying, he says, you know, by necessaries, I understand whatever the custom of the country renders it indecent for credible people to be without. And that, of course, changes over time. And it's because people are aware of the urban. Um, yeah, third question. Um, yeah, that's a big... If, if you look at the... Okay, I'll start. If you look at the graphs of uh, the percentage of the labour force in the informal sector, or the informal employment, and the per percentage in formal employment... It kind of declined from 1960 through to about 1995. And you kind of thought, okay, yeah, this is what we'd expect, formalization of the economy. People have been coming out of informal sector and going into the formal sector, and it's becoming like here, broadly speaking. It then stops going down. 
Yeah? And if anything, it's going up now. So in other words, Thailand is becoming more inf informal. Yeah? It's informalizing rather than formalizing. And that's not because the informal sector's growing, it's because the informal economy is growing. So that was that part of that thing. So if you like, sectors of the economy that were formalized are being outsourced and therefore they're becoming informal. So like the net, person making the nets, yeah? So I think you've got two things going on. You've got maybe a decline in the informal sector, but you've also got an increase in the informal economy, which makes which is the formalization, the informalization of the formal economy, yeah? So I think you, in a way, those data collapse both of those slightly different processes into one set of figures, and you have to kind of pull them apart. You have to ask, how does late capitalism create, well, it's kind of what, in the UK, you know, you know, all the Uber drivers and all that kind of stuff, so the casualization, the informalization of work, and that's kind of what's happening in, in Thailand. So I think that explains what was kind of what I was trying to get at. But in a short, yeah, I could have spent more on. Okay, let us let us collect three more uh, sets of questions. Uh, I think uh, there is one over there that has been waiting for some time, and then we collect or two from the first row, and then those round of questions. Please. Hi there. My name is Christopher. I'm an analyst at Microsoft, and my question is about the Belt Road Initiative. There was a photo that got some notoriety maybe a year or so ago about uh, showing these massive pylons being laid down in Luang Prabang for high-speed rail infrastructure in Laos. And similar photos have cropped up since then in other parts of Southeast Asia. And you had a slide earlier about roads matter. So my question is, what's your response to this initiative? What do you think? Um, I mean, yeah, however you'd like to answer. Okay, next please. Thanks. Um, my name's Claire Mercer. I'm in geography. Um, and I'm just interested, based on your historical engagement with this region, and I think it's the last image from 2008 that makes me wonder about internal differentiation within the village. What, what kind of... Have you seen any internal differentiation within the village? And what does that look like? Yes. Hi, um, Catherine from Royal Holloway. Um, I was just going to ask about methods. So you kind of gave some really nice examples of perhaps the importance of longitudinal research. I wanted to ask you more around the changing spatial nature in the village. How over, over decades, how has your methodological approach needed to change? And how might it need to change moving forward given the spatial splintering of the household? So are there particular innovations and methods that you are pursuing or think need, scholars need to think about more with the changing nature of the household? All right. Great. So, Christopher, wasn't it? Yeah, um, Yeah. good question. Um, in fact, we're working very close to where the high-speed railway is going through Laos, you know, and then... And it's completely wrecked a village we're working in because they've built a cement factory. In fact, I think it's on the website, isn't it, for this lecture? Can you put one of my pictures? Anyway, uh, and it's destroying organic vegetable farm. I mean, just extraordinary. Um, but the BRI, um, that's the Belt and Road Initiative, so this, which are just all-encompassing trillion-dollar sort of investment led by the Chinese to connect up China to Southeast Asia, but also further afield, Central Asia, Europe, and so forth. Um, well, classic, I'm kind of, 
I'm always on the fence with these things. It's another one where I'm on the fence. Roads really do matter. And I always think of that film, you probably most people, too, Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. Great film. You know, where they build a baseball diamond, yeah, in, the, in, a, in a field, yeah. And in his head, there's this voice saying, they will come, they will come. And I think roads are a bit like that. You build a road and stuff happens. I mean, it's just amazing. But what the BRI does is I think it, it just kind of skirts round the places that I'm invested in. So it connects up cities, yeah? It connects up these sort of urban centres, but it doesn't really do very much for the bits in between the two. So I mean, I think for the high-speed railway, other than just wrecking the livelihoods of the villages we're working with outside Nongbaban, um, I'm not sure whether it will have much effect on rural people. Um, Roads, I think, are a little bit different. But you get some really surprising change. I mean, roads, some people say roads are gendered. Yeah? Men can exploit roads much better than women. Yeah? Um, some people say that actually when you build a road, you make off-road communities less accessible. Because people then invest in a new truck because they think, wow, we've got a surfaced road now. And then they'll say, right, we won't go to you. You have to bring your stuff to the roadside for us to collect. There's been some really interesting work by Gina Porter on roads in West Africa in a sort of rather counterintuitive way. Roads can make off-road communities more remote than they were before the roads were built. So I think at a kind of simple level, yes, roads matter, but the details of what they do and to whom, you know, gender, generation, ethnic group, on-road, off-road, I think it really, really matters. Yeah, and when we—I mean, last thing to say on this—when we did some work, only about 20 years ago in um, in Laos, looking at roads, we d- we did kind of two focus groups with men and women. Women were in, interested in complete—they saw roads completely differently. They were interested in collecting different things, engaging with different types of work than men. So men saw many more advantages in roads than did the women we talked to. But that was around about 2000. So. Things probably changed since then. Um, Claire, internal differentiation. Um, yeah, um, it, it is happening. Um, well, well I, I mean, I didn't put it in this um, presentation, but we, we've got this really interesting longitudinal data set of households over three periods, and we're hoping to get a fourth soon. And I, I kind of put them in rank order from... Wealth, richest to poorest in 1982 and richest to poorest in 2008. And I thought that most of the lines would kind of be horizontal, so that, that if you like, wealth and poverty would be reproduced broadly in line with each other over time. And actually, it's not like that at all. I mean, the lines just go up and down and everywhere. And we've been kind of, again, puzzling over what on earth's going on. And then when you look at the individual households and you say, what's happened? Often it's some health disaster. You know, a son who was injured in a a motorcycle accident. You know, a husband who fell ill and they had to pay the hospital bills. And you see, and then you realise how close to the edge some of these people are. So they've gone from being just fine to be having to sell their land and then becoming landless. And it was interesting that we couldn't read off from the who was kind of rich and poor in 1982, who would be rich and poor in 2008. So yes, differentiation is occurring, but it's not kind of occurring always in the ways that you would expect. And the, I mean, 
I keep referring to it. The book that I really like on this is from India, a book called One Illness Away, which is just fantastic. And it's about that for the poor, you are just one illness away from catastrophe. You know, because the only thing you've got to sell is your labour. I mean, you've got no savings, there's probably no social security, and if you lose your ability to sell your labour, you are in trouble. And, um, and it's a lovely book. And reading that book made me kind of think about what was going on in the village. So yes, differentiation, but some interesting sort of alternative ways to think about it. And then Catherine, methods. Um, yeah, back in, I mean, in 1983, I mean, my methods were dull, dull. Um, uh, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. So um, I think they've become slightly more sophisticated. But having to track all the pieces of the puzzle, I think it's become more demanding. I mean, I know your work, you do, you know, trying to think, um, you know, just turning up in the villages. I mean, I said earlier that I could enter the village in 83 and maybe 80%, I could... I could understand, 80, say, 80% of the village. I think if I now went into Bainantau, I'd understand about 20% of the village. So 80% is kind of off-site, and the question is, how do we get a grip on that? But I think they're also um, kind of analytical, the question of the analytical units that we use, you know, what is the household? What is the village? I mean, in a sense, it doesn't tell us nearly what it did back, yeah? And that requires us to be... Um, more kind of agile and I suppose the last thing to say on this is I've kind of thought when I mean I work on agrarian change and I could think about rural livelihoods and a lot of rural livelihoods are not in the rural they're in the urban I could think of agriculture which is the main activity in the rural but it probably doesn't contribute that much to rural livelihoods yeah or I could think of all economic activity in the rural and the decentralization of factories to rural areas. So in a sense, how do we slice the cake? Do we think of it as rural agricultural livelihoods? And each entry point kind of opens up a different way to think about rural development. Um, and and I, I keep referring to people, don't I? Michael Burroway has this lovely comment where he says, methodology is not innocent. Yeah? So the methodologies that we use just are so important in determining where we end up. Yeah? I mean, who, who do you interview? How do you interview them? What do you measure? What do you focus on? What do you ignore? What do you leave out? Yeah? I mean, even, uh, you know, migration. What about the people who don't migrate? You know, that's the other side of, you know, focusing on migrants is only half the story. So, yeah, so I think methodology is m much more than just, you know, dull methods. It's really important in deciding what you're doing and how and why and that sort of stuff. Great. Um... Questions? Yes, there was one at the back. Um, Mike, please. Hi, uh, Laurie Parsons, geographer at Royal Holloway. Um, so thanks for a brilliant talk. Oh, uh, you've given us a great sense of how uh, the, the household has changed in its distribution across space. I was wondering if you could perhaps give uh, more of a sense of how the mobilities of that household have changed over time. And in particular, to what extent can we get away from what Ronald, Stil Ronald Skeldon calls the myth of the immobile peasant in the first instance? To what extent was this household really static and really bounded to the extent that you describe? Okay. Um, there's one over there. Yes, reflect. Hi, uh, my name is Martina. I'm a third-year politics and IR student. Um, 
My question's more sort of looking at the kind of policy perspective, because you talked about how, depending on how you view poverty, you kind of have different sort of developmental responses, and you kind of emphasized the kind of newfound precarity that's kind of emerged. So I was wondering what you thought was the kind of best sort of, well, best policy response to sort of mitigate this precarity that's emerged. Okay, what can we do with these two questions now? Okay, yeah. Um, I suppose I did, yeah. I sort of painted the picture of the past as an immobile past, and you're right, the kind of sedentary peasant paradigm sort of thing, that until, you know, modernization came along, everyone was safely cocooned in their villages. They didn't get out much, nothing much happened. They, you know, married people within walking distance, and they died. Um, and, of course, yeah, I mean, I realize historical studies have shown, actually, there was a lot more than that. Um, Andrew Walker's book, you know, on Laos, historical work on Thailand shows that people were moving around, that they were working in Bangkok, they were on the, um, they were trading long distances. Money was in use, you know, very early on to pay head taxes in Thailand. So well, where did they get the money from? They must have got it from somewhere, so they must have been working. So I realised that, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I know that's how I set it up in terms of those households. Um, and yes, people were, were more mobile than kind of that view gives them credit for. So I suppose I kind of, I suppose I was trying to make an argument of degree um, that yes, people were mobile, but boy, are they so much more mobile now. Um, and, I, and I think the way that the village has been kind of pulled apart, uh, you know, and opened up and that sort of thing is beyond all realms of, both mentally actually as well as physically. I mean, I think, I mean, the question here, I mean, that sort of mental sense of people being connected to some larger world, I think is at least as important as the physical movement. Um, but I, I do think it's significantly ratcheted up from how it was. So yes, they weren't immobile, there was movement, people... But I mean, when, when we were trying to, we did, um, I sort of hinted, it's very hard to sort of divine the past from the present. You know, when you ask people, well, what was it like in the past? And of course it's, oh, it's terrible. You know, or they say it was lovely and the young, they were respectful and all that kind of stuff. So I know there are dangers, but I mean, you do get the feeling of how difficult it was to travel, how expensive it was to travel. Um, I examined a PhD in Chiang Mai um, at the end of last year, uh, some Jirawat's PhD, and he has some really interesting historical work on just, you know, how if people did want to go to the local town, how long it took and how much it cost. And you kind of think, okay, wow, you know, it wasn't a case of just hailing a bus and getting on it. So I think the friction of distance is significantly different. So I, I guess I'm kind of sticking to my guns um, to at least, uh, you know, as a, a kind of broad working position. But I, I do I completely agree with you that there's much more movement than the sedentary peasant paradigm kind of implies. So, but anyway. Um, yeah, precarity. Policy solutions. Um, I know the LSE's quite good on policy, aren't they? I'm, I'm really... I don't know, when... Um, 
it was a real shock to me when academics were told that they had to have social impact, mm -hmm. AR, which was the last ref, and that's when I left the country and went to Singapore, because I thought, oh no, they're going to ask me, well, who cares about your work? Um, what importance does it have? What's the policy implications? And I don't know. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think, um, okay, I, um, I mean, looking at Thailand, I feel the Thai state and Thai kind of elite and Thai thinkers are so urban in the way they think about things. I think the rural is caricatured. They simply don't understand it. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, really, th I mean, there are some important exceptions, but I, I really think there's a failure to understand, well, the degree to which, if you like, the Thai economic miracle is actually a rural economic miracle. You know, what happened... I mean, you think of those factories in central Thailand and why they've succeeded. So when the... Um, kind of go back to 1985. 1985, during the Plaza Accord, you know, the um, Japanese and Americans sat down and they said, right, to deal with the Japanese trade, you know, surplus with the US, we've got to let the yen appreciate against the US dollar. So suddenly, almost overnight, millions of kind of yen or is it billions or whatever were invested in Thailand to build factories. Yeah, extraordinary foreign direct investment on the back of that decision taken by two people sitting in a hotel in New York. Yeah, and of course those factories, they won't work unless people are willing to go there. And I mean, I think we sometimes lose sight of the fact, I'm not sure if this is an answer to your question, but I'm kind of on a roll. Um, we kind of lose sight of the fact that these young men and women yeah, leaving home, they've never done it before, yeah, and being willing to work in factories to make the urban, you know, Thai world what it is. So when people, I mean, like that cartoon, when they put that up and they complain about the buffaloes clogging up the streets, the way that glosses over the fact that their wealth has been built on those millions of young, mainly young men and women who have been willing to take up that work, yeah, which we can kind of track back to these decisions made in you know, the international arena. So there's a, I think there's a really interesting connection between those stories, well, this is my argument, those stories I made, you know, those two households, what they did, how they tried to build better livelihoods for themselves, the way that connects up to a decision taken in a hotel room in the Plaza Hotel in yeah, and how that led to all these changes. But there's a you know, that willingness of people to kind of get on their bikes and go to a UTA and other places like that. And of course, not just in Thailand, in Indonesia, in Malaysia and so on. I mean, just amazing. So, I mean, to come back to your policy question, a recognition of that, I think, would mean that the Thai state would have more respect for what has happened in rural areas rather than seeing them as a problem that we have to deal with. Get them out of farming, deal with, yeah. And then I think, I mean, this is, um, then I think we would have at least have policies which paid some attention to that sort of collective sacrifice that people like that have made in order, I mean, I realize to make their own livelihoods to earn income, but the, the contribution of that to Thai national development is just sort of overlooked. And... And the way that they're juggling, I mean, just extraordinary the way they're juggling these things. I mean, China, I've never worked in China, but boy, I'd like to. I mean, China, of course, it's writ large, I mean, on an epic scale. 
I mean, Thailand is just, you know, pretty little country compared to China. You know, China. But in China, of course, these same debates going on. You know, 70 million children being looked after by grandparents and that sort of thing. I mean, the, the numbers are just enormous. And the costs, or the sacrifice. Sorry, I haven't answered your question, but anyway. A, a very brief question, perhaps, uh, and you don't have to answer it, uh, actually. Uh, but talking about China, uh, one of the geographers based in UC Berkeley, Yutin Singh, who's been looking at land issues in China's uh, urbanization, was looking at how this urbanization is spatial expansion of the urban built environment, which was engulfed in a kind of a observing adjacent villages. Mm -hmm. um, and she was kind of making a statement saying, uh, they, referring to villagers you know, who have become subject to urbanization, saying uh, villagers, you know, they didn't go to the city, but city came to them. Mm -hmm. So without having to move and migrate, you know, they were basically sitting there but the huge force of the city's expansion, basically observing the village land and basically turning them into workers, citizens, or uh, landlords, and you know, taking their agricultural livelihood away from them. So I wonder whether if you pick a, another village in Thailand, which is on the edge of an you know, you know, existing metropolitan area, I wonder whether uh, you would produce you know, uh, what sort of picture that may be similar or different from what you have told us? Yeah, um, I mean, oddly, we're doing work, I mean, not, not in Thailand, but in Vietnam, outside <coughs> Hanoi, so in the kind of hmm. Hanoi extended metropolitan region. Um, I mean, I think there are kind of two things going on. One is there's a, I mean, you're an urban geographer, so you know this much better than me. I mean, there's a kind of, some scholars have argued that urbanization in Asia is qualitatively different from urbanization in Europe and North America. You know, this sort of urbanization in areas of high-density wet rice cultivation where rural populations are up to 1,000 people per square kilometer, yeah, that it takes a different form from urbanization elsewhere. So maybe when you get this incorporation of villages, yeah, it's part of a, a kind of different extended metropolitanization process. Um, and the work of a scholar called Terry McGee kind of was the first sort of seminal work to say, hang on, maybe this is different. And he has a lovely paper where he talks about how he was in a bus or something with his, you know, and they were talking, anyway. Um, so there's that. But I think also, and I hinted at it, I mean, in an odd sort of way, these villages are urban. I mean, if we think of urban not as the material manifestation of the urban, but as a way of thinking about the world, you know, a set of behaviors, you know, what do you hold dear? What are your values? That sort of thing. And I think um, maybe that kind of rural-urban dichotomy used to be one which is not just, well, the countryside and the city, but it was also one that harbored differences of way of life and cultural behavior and all that sort of thing. And I think that's different. There's um, a lovely book by Eric Thompson on Malaysia where, and I kind of used the term here, but I didn't cite him, I should have done, where he talks about his villages being socially urban. So they're still in rural space, but at all intents and purposes, they're urban in the way that they behave. I mean, in a sense, you know, if you went to a, I don't know, a village in Surrey, you wouldn't say, well, you're so rural, aren't you? I mean, you know, they're probably commute and they engage and they, yeah. So I mean, it comes back to your question there. But the, so I think there are two things going on. Well, one is, if you like, the first rural and the first urban, 
So the manifestation of the materialization of the urban over space, which is kind of what the York Berkeley. And I think there's a sort of second rural and urban, which is about the non-material, and I think that's at least as important. Um, I mean, right now I'm uh, reviewing a really interesting paper on the assumption that all young people don't want to be farmers, um, and where we get that from, and whether it's actually accurate, and whether... And the, the point of this paper, they say that if you actually ask young people face-to-face, -face, what do you want to do when you grow up? They all say, oh, I don't want to be a farmer, I want to be a government worker or whatever, you know, I want to be an accountant. Um, but actually, if you do it anonymously, a lot of them say they want to be a farmer. So this paper is kind of arguing that actually there's a lot of peer pressure on parents saying, we've invested all this money in your education. Boy, do not think of yourself, you don't become a peasant because you've got to support me in later life. Um, that sort of thing. If you do it anonymously, you get different answers. And I'd never kind of thought of that before. So, and that, so this kind of question of the socially urban and how it's manifested is, yeah, interesting thought. Well, with that, I, I suppose uh, uh, you would like to continue on and on, but uh, well, we do have the room until 8 o'clock and time is up. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much again uh, for coming uh, to LSE to share your dirty plus years of experience in studying this rural development, urbanization, how to think about development, think about you know, understanding the poverty, affluence, and security. So uh, thank you so much again. We hope to have you back to LSE sometime.